Our episode today will be a discussion that continues to explore all the sort of nooks and crannies and depths of the modern graduate student experience. And I think a lot of the areas of growth and improvement that are uh, really necessary and required, kind of long overdue changes that need to happen. So uh, just really appreciate the opportunity to continue to have these conversations and uplift them on the podcast this year. We will start out, as we always do, though, with uh, our guests uh, introducing themselves really quick and their organization. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Kaylin Glover. I just finished my PhD in biology at a R1 institution in the United States. I'm here representing an organization that I helped co-found. I say organization, it's definitely more of just a project. Um, It's called FARM, F-A-A-R-M, and it stands for Framework for Accountability in Academic Research and Mentoring. And our job, our goal is to do what we can to implement or to encourage universities and other research institutions to implement policies and practices that can help ensure that their graduate students are not being taken advantage of, neglected, abused in some instances. And so just by implementing good practices and policies, a lot of this stuff can be avoided. Uh, And hopefully we can help address the graduate student mental health crisis. Yeah, and I know that's uh, going to be kind of the the topic of the episode is mental health in particular. And uh, you were one of the panelists on a, a session that I moderated a few months back that we were able to put into the uh, podcast feed here. So folks can definitely uh, check that out to kind of have your perspective, you know, in alignment with some other folks who are working in this space as well. Focusing in on the graduate student mental health crisis, what is kind of the general context of this issue? You know, what's going on and why? Um, Because I know you've kind of framed this as sort of a sort of a unique problem. Yeah, it definitely is. And I I first want to always recognize that we are all suffering. Life is hard, especially right now. And this is worse for certain populations, uh, marginalized people, people in poverty. uh, And we often talk about student mental health and we think of undergraduate mental health. Uh, And certainly undergraduates are suffering, but graduate student mental health is a unique problem. And this is borne out in the data. If you, I'm I'm gonna throw some numbers here. These are all from research papers, research that's been done on graduate education. They use well-validated metrics of mental health. Um, Most of them are done on doctoral students, uh, some international students, but mostly US. So if you look at the numbers, 39% of doctoral students have moderate to severe depression, so that's, about 40%, 41% uh, moderate to severe anxiety. These are rates that are six times that of the general population and twice that of undergraduates. Depression for doctoral students is about 10% higher than what it is for master's students um, and professional students. This is worse for minority and marginalized populations. Over 20% of students are taking medication for their symptoms and about 20% are in therapy. 10% of students admit to considering suicide and 2% are actively planning it. Half of doctoral students drop out. This means that you are as likely to graduate as you are to develop a severe mental health problem. So it is clear that something uniquely troublesome is happening in graduate education. As we are kind of talking about this episode, like my mind has been going and why I want to try to sort of explore all the depths of this issue is that like we're seeing a moment where um, while I think, you know, you recognize that uh, walkouts and strikes and sort of advocacy in the graduate student space have been happening for a very long time, you know, and has driven, you know, sort of changes and improvements here. Like, I think there's been more attention put on um, some bigger sort of protests and everything. So I think it's if we're at sort of a unique point where life is hard, graduate school is hard, but there's sort of this apex that's sort of happening where if nothing else, because like none of these things are new and unique to this moment, this problem has been sort of, uh, sort of pervasive or long, you know, kind of, uh, long running in history and everything. So it's like, you know, we're, we're long overdue with 
these programs needing to implement new policies and just be more considerate of the the needs in this crisis that's going on, this mental health crisis that's going on. And I think just in terms of kind of framing this issue, you kind of have to kind of contextualize with the with the statistics there. But what is it about like these programs in particular? What is the specific nature of these academic programs that is affecting graduate student mental health? Good question, because it seems odd to think that there's something unique happening in this population, uh, especially since not much has changed in graduate education over decades. So why are we talking about this now? Graduate mental health, I don't know if it's been studied historically. Most of the research that I came across has been since the 90s, maybe. Those numbers do suggest that it is getting worse. Whatever is happening is not uh, is, is not getting better, definitely. Um, and so when you look at, anecdotally, looking at what's changed over this course of time, you've got changes in higher education in general that have been happening since the 90s when states have started to shift their funding structures. Uh, and that's all created some problems. Uh, and I think a lot of that has affected graduate education in a way that it has avoided affecting other types of education. And that I think has to do with the nature and the structure of graduate education. So we need to talk a little bit about how graduate students differ from the other two dominant on-campus populations. We've got undergraduates and we have professional students. Uh, when people think of university students, what pops into their mind is usually indicative of an undergraduate lifestyle, attending classes, taking exams, studying, and socializing. Undergraduates differ from professional and graduate students in that the latter two are more serious, they're older, they're often raising families, they're not out partying. Um, but there's also differences between the graduate and the professional students. And keep in mind, I was the director of legislative affairs for the National Association of Graduate Professional Students. So I am keenly aware of this distinction that a lot of people don't make. Professional programs are programs that are associated with some kind of professional licensure or some certification. Uh, there are very specific courses with very specific outcomes. And that is an important difference. Their lives in general, a professional student's life, is spent taking a lot of courses, taking exams, um, gearing towards uh, a specific outcome that many people uh, from across the country have had some input into. Graduate education is very, very different. The primary difference is that courses are not the center of their focus. Uh, for master's students and for the first couple of years of a doctoral program, a student is taking two, maybe three classes a semester. There's very few exams. Uh, the courses are highly customized to their specific research interest. And then after doc dissertation proposal defenses, the doctoral students don't take any more courses. In fact, we're not allowed to usually. And so that's a, that's a major difference in how their daily lives look and how their courses are designed and their curriculum is designed. Another major difference is that graduate students are under the direction of a research advisor. And this is perhaps the most important difference. This advisor, when someone thinks of a, a, an advisor for school, they think of an undergraduate advisor. They tell them what courses to take, what they need to graduate. Uh, they meet with them like once a semester, that sort of thing. It is very, very different for graduate students. This advisor guides their entire research project, their either thesis or dissertation, specifies exactly what, what courses they'll need to take to get there, but also what that project is gonna look like, how much money they have to do that research. Uh, this person is usually uh, highly specialized in that field, and the student will often have to relocate across the country just to work with them. Joining their lab or their research lineage is, they call it, an academic lineage. You're joining their family. 
And then trying to graduate, whether or not you finish, is heavily dependent upon that person's opinion of your work and where you are in it, and the and a committee that they heavily influence of about four other faculty members who might have something to do with the topic. So that is an inordinate amount of control that that person has over that student's career, and it's highly subjective and uh, and unregulated by external forces for the most part. There's very there's some there are a few things, but it can almost always be overridden by an advisor. So you have very little coursework, a lot of uh, their research being under the control of this uh, their advisor. And then you have their employment and they are by and large as, as a graduate student, not necessarily a professional student, but for the most part employed by the university. If they're a full-time student, they're often being paid to teach courses. They're often helping with their advisor's courses, or they're helping their advisor conduct their advisor's research. And so there, again, you have this advisor who is heavily influencing their employment and what they're doing outside of their own research. So these factors combine to create an environment that drives this mental health crisis. Um, and what we get are two primary issues, the financial problems and the advisor problems. And there's a lot of overlap. So financially, and we'll, I'll mention this, this is something that people will often talk about when they talk about graduate student issues. And it's usually because it's easy to see. Um, money is the root of all problems, right? But for graduate students, the, the situation is fraught. Their per hour wage is usually above minimum wage. And that makes everything look cool, right? Like you're going to get paid enough to live, except that you're prohibited from being paid for more than 20 hours of work. Um, you're not allowed to work more than 20 hours officially, though if you're working under your advisor or depending on exactly what your assignment is, um, you will often work more than that. And it's rarely tracked and almost never enforced. Um, you're also prohibited from taking on other employment. If you're having a grad assistantship, you often have to sign a contract. And that says that you will lose your position at the university if you work elsewhere, period. And then because you're a full-time student, that means that all that rest of your time is spent committed to the university. And if you take that into consideration, you're getting you know, 20 hours of just above living wage for 40 hours of work. Um, and that means you are being paid usually under a living wage, if not under the poverty line. I knew graduate students who were working 40 plus hours a week for the university and had a $10,000 a year stipend. And they had a family that they were trying to support, <laughs> trying being the operative word. At the same time, because we don't get that much, but we do get some, the universities grant us tuition waivers. That's wonderful. We don't have to pay tuition except that that comes with the social pressure of not having to take out student loans because it makes departments and programs look bad if their graduate students are living on student loans. They are not going to be able to recruit good students if they find out that most of their students, half of their students are living on student loans. And so you get criticized, you get, there's all sorts of ways that the programs, um, punish that sounds really uh, it's got the wrong implication but it's it's bad if people find out you're taking out student loans so you've got this this uh, really unfortunate situation where students are doing all of this work on little pay and few ways to 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 earn more let's play a game what keywords does your website rank for? What doesn't it rank for that you think it should? What are a few opportunities you could be winning on if you tweaked some website copy? Okay, how'd you do? Not great? That's okay. Because our friends at DD Agency want to answer all of those questions for you and then some. DD Agency is a higher ed specific marketing technology agency that has conducted countless SEO audits for colleges and universities across the country. In these audits, they detail where you currently rank, what you could be ranking for, exactly how copy should be tweaked on website pages, and much more. 
If this sounds like something you could benefit from, give those folks a ping and be sure to mention that Enrollify sent you to claim a 10% discount on any of their SEO offerings. Head on over to enrollify.org slash D-D-A-S-E-O or simply follow the link in the show notes below that will guarantee you a 10% discount off of your audit. Again, head on over to enrollify.org slash D-D-A-S-E-O to learn more. Now, on to the show. So of course you're thinking, well, we just, you know, get the student out faster. Well, that's a complicated problem in and of itself. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But because students are often working under their advisors, you've got this dual relationship between their the person who's guiding their research, the person who's telling them what courses to take, the person who's employing them, the person who's at the center of their social dynamic, um, all of that is being wrapped up into one. Um, and this is further complicated. So if you are a student and you are employed by the university and as a graduate student, and you get the opportunity to, to make some extra money on campus, let's say, um, to tutor some freshmen in a biology class. And uh, you have to get your advisor's approval to do that. doesn't sound like it would be that big of a deal, right? A lot of advisors should theoretically support it. That doesn't necessarily mean they will. In my case, I have was offered the opportunity to tutor freshman students in a course that I TA'd, so they already knew me, uh, for $100 an hour, one hour on Sunday nights for two months. That's like good pay. And I could have really used it at the time. I had to request my advisor do it uh, or to request my advisor approve it. He emailed me back and was like, no, you need to be working. And this is a Sunday night at like seven o'clock for an hour. You're telling me I should be working, doing my research, doing whatever it is you want me to do instead of using that opportunity to make some money that I could really use. No. I tried to go over and talk to the DGS. They're like, "You're no, sorry, I can't. Nothing I can do. Your advisor's opinion stands." And uh, and so, like these little punitive ways of controlling students um, is is really problematic. Like forty hours a week of work extends. It's really all the time, uh, depending on your advisor. So then you have this advisor who's who's. You know, your, your money is, is short. Your advisor controls how much you get and how, what work you're doing. Um, but it, it, what it, you effectively get is an employee-employer relationship between a student's research advisor and the student. Um, that's daily routine, opportunities for professional advancement, training opportunities, workload, compensation. These are, this is a dynamic you don't get in any other academic population, any other student population. But unlike other types of employer-employee dynamics, there is no protections for students at any kind of federal level. Um, they, are, they don't get employee protections. They don't get access to HR, uh, none of that. And then you're like, well, just like, you know, a, a student can leave. They don't have to stay there. They can find someplace else, except all the years that they've spent there are lost because their credits don't transfer because they're so customized. And then you have the fact that, that you don't have universities in every city. So you have one university with this one person that you likely moved there to work under. Where are you going to go? You move, you have to move schools, find another state to go to. And then you got to find somebody who does that thing. And then you have enrollment cycles that are usually annually and they all know each other. So they've taught, you may have met them at a conference and they're going to wonder why you left that person's lab. There, there's, there's so many power dynamics behind the scenes stuff that happens that your ability to even get into that lab could be affected by the fact that that person co-authored a paper with the advisor that you're trying to leave. So by quitting your program, you derail your entire career. And yet half of doctoral students still do it. That is an insane statistic given these conditions. And so you have this, this, this nature, this structure of the program that, that is highly subjective and very loosely regulated with a series of unbalanced power dynamics where this one person controls every aspect of your life. 
And that's a recipe for disaster. And that's why we have 40% of graduate students depressed, moderate to severe, not just like depressed, moderate to severe, 10% actively thinking about suicide. This is a problem. And it's one that it's, it's, uh, when you start a graduate program, it's advisor roulette and you're putting your life on the line. Now, to be clear, I genuinely believe that the vast majority of faculty and research advisors are good people who would never try to hurt their students and would actively do things that would help them. But the problem is, is that we're not always aware of how we come across to other people. Interpersonal dynamics is complicated. Uh, you, there, there's entire courses on interpersonal relations and microaggressions and making sure that when you're in a position of power and you have employees, you have done the things that you need to do in order to ensure that you're not violating any boundaries. That is normal in any other employment environment. And that's why that's heavily regulated. But this is one that's in a black hole of, of no regulations and, and no training and, and no one looking at it. There's relatively few of us, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And as a result, people who have the best intentions hurt the people that they care about. And, and I, I have so many good feelings towards the people that I know have hurt their students. And it's all because of things that they didn't mean to do usually and would have absolutely chosen differently had they realized that what they were doing was harmful. But the higher education system, the dynamic that's changed in the past 20, 30 years especially, has created a monster. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot there, obviously, and I appreciate you kind of just giving that kind of comprehensive context around these academic programs. It seems to be that there's probably a lot of the kind of room for improvement, whether it's like, I mean, and I'm sure, you know, you'll, you'll lay a lot of things out, but it just seems like there's so many dynamics around like, you know, are these advisors actually like well prepared to like supervise and manage people, but then just a lot of the you know, the, the rights or kind of uh, avenues for like recourse, you know, for students, like you said, there, and that's a lot of what we talked about in the, uh, the panel at the conference uh, before was the, just the uh, kind of awkward place of like between being a student and between being an employee. It's like you can kind of get into those quagmires where you're getting kind of the worst end of both deals uh, where there should be kind of a you're getting the best of both worlds like you are a student who is granted a lot of learning opportunities and uh, but you're also being compensated for you know really valuable work experiences that you're getting that you can then parlay towards other you know future uh goals but like you know i know some other people that have gone through uh you know masters and phd programs and they're just this kind of this like weird kind of you know the the ivory tower and academia and just sort of navigating these circles where like you know, they, some of them have kind of broken apart from it and just seem so much better for it. You know, like it's, they've just kind of had this like refreshing, you know, uh, kind of, you know, air about them where like they have a new perspective once they were able to get out of sort of uh, even just like, you know, there's like a competitiveness between like the student, you know, and it's just a lot of like posturing and reputation. And, you know, uh, so it's like, you know, some things like you said that are sort of endemic to academia and sort of the you know decades of sort of languishing and you know outdated policies are not you know adjusting like compensation rates or you know having you know accountability for uh you know these these faculty and and folks that are they're working with students and everything so um you know just to try to like you know move on from that because i think there's obviously so much more that we can discuss but i think just with kind of the timing that we have here like you know as as we're sort of uh looking at some of these structural aspects uh you know these academic programs these institutions and everything like what are ways that you see that this issue could be uh starting to get addressed that you are advocating for answering how to fix it um you have to look at what are the structural factors at play we think of employee regulations and we think of student regulations and graduate students fall into this legal regulatory hole. Um, and so the things that I recommend 
usually do not have to do with those. While I 100% think that those are areas that we need to address, uh, there are students now whose lives can be improved tomorrow by individual faculty picking up some specific things uh, and if they, that, that should, would help. And these are things that universities can do, that programs can do, and that individual faculty can do within a short period of time and with relatively little cost. We've collected a lot of different resources and they are all like, listed on our website. Um, and we'll link a bunch of these in the um, show notes, I'm sure. Uh, so, but, but there's four major ones that are relatively easy to do. The first one, university level, is to ratify enforceable student rights that are targeted towards graduate student specific issues. So often universities will have student rights that are listed, but those will have be things like returning exams back in a certain amount of time and extra time during dead week. Those are not relevant to graduate student issues for the most part. They need to be things like what Boston University has in theirs will not require the graduate student to perform tasks that are unrelated to their training program and professional development. I don't need to be running personal errands for my advisor. And if I choose not to do that, I don't need to be punished for it. Another one, uh, University of Texas, their integrative biology department states that uh, their students have the right to mentoring investment from their advisors that support and advances the student's academic and professional goals, specifically the right to explore or pursue a career outside of academia without penalty. You would think that that wouldn't be a big issue, but it does happen. And a lot of times faculty will say, We're, I'm really supportive of students who want to do something else. But they say that, but their own biases come into play, right? Like there are, there are times that students have been retaliated against in unofficial nuanced ways that make it very difficult for them to do anything uh, because of it. But when you have student rights that are spelled out and that have been ratified and that are enforceable, then when faculty do violate it, well, first they're more mindful of it, so they're less likely to do it. And they're more, students have a recourse. They can say, I am being punished for this. Can I, can I please have an option here? So that's one. Um, but I will say here that faculty resist, uh, will resist these. They really dislike putting these kind of boundaries on it because they view these graduate students as part of their academic family. But as a red flag in general, if someone says you don't need boundaries, you need boundaries and you need them more now than you did before, right? The only reason why somebody doesn't want boundaries is because that puts limits on how they can behave towards you. Um, so just a heads up, faculty, please work with us here, okay? Support this. You want to be a good faculty member, help us, help us trust you, okay? Um, so the second one is that you need to, this is another university-wide one. This can also be done at a program or department level, but to implement flexible advising structures that provide a way for students to continue their research and earn their degree under a new advisor without a substantial loss of progress. There's a lot of ways that this can look. So depending on, depending on your system and how things are going, first year lab or advisor rotations. You can have the DGS as being your official one, but for four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, you work under one person, you get to know them, and then you leave. And then you can pick who you want to work with and it can be mutually decided and you get to talk to the people who have been there. Another one, require co-advising. It gives you two advisors to go to. If something's going on, you automatically have another one that you can turn to. That other person can put pressure, can help balance things out. It's not a one-to-one -one dynamic. You can also um, have well-defined, well-established rules for thesis and committee members that have them actively engaged, that they know what's going on at all times, 
they can step in as a new advisor if needed. They can be temporary advisors if you need time off um, uh, from that specific advisor. And then the National Academies recommended this one. Um, they have a document uh, publication, The Science of Effective Mentoring in STEM. Um, but to implement emergency transfer provisions, and this is a university level one usually, but it's one semester of unconditional funding to switch advisors, no questions asked. If you need to get out of a lab, if you need to get out of a situation that's harmful, then you need to be able to do that without losing like your livelihood and without dropping out of school. The third one is that there need to be university policies uh, targeted at improving the quality of mentorship. We, universities are all about education, so let's focus on educating the educators. Um, and this includes both setting standards for mentorship, as well as ensuring that those standards can be easily met. We're talking about a certification that can be revocable, um, and that the certification is tied to their attending courses, or like even online training is fine. Um, it needs to be a regular thing, onboarding with new faculty, including mentorship performance in tenure and promotion decisions. This is likely going to be the one that faculty will rebel against the most. They hate being told what to do. And you know what? I get it. I've been in academia for 14 years, so we don't like being told what to do. We are highly independent people. Um, but we make faculty do this if they have to do research with animals. Can we honestly say that we don't think that graduate students are worth similar attention? If you have to be trained to ethically work with animals, I think it's reasonable to say that we need to be trained to work and to supervise and to have so much control over students. And if a university wants to complain about having to find courses on mentorship, I would ask them what their primary jobs are, if not to develop courses and award certification. If they cared enough, they would do it. And I genuinely believe that they care. And so please, on behalf of the 10% of students who are suicidal, please make it a priority. My last recommendation, man, this guy, see, I was not wanting to get like sad and depressed, but it's, it's like, it's rough. I, I know what it's like being a student. And I know that the universities care and want to do well by them. So I put the plea into the universe. Um, so the last recommendation that Farm has is to use a mentorship agreement. This is one that individual faculty can do tonight and to whip it up and get it out to their students. This is a, a, as a kind of a contract that establishes what each person can expect from the other, as well as boundaries that they will not cross. Okay, so a lot of people hear this and they think of IDPs, which are individual development plans. And um, this is like an outline of a career uh, development, right, for that faculty make for each student. It's similar, but it's but the, but that is too limited. Um, mentorship agreements encompass the entire advisor advisee dynamic. Important facts: one, it's bi-directional. You can sit there, sit there, and say, "I expect my student to like show up in my lab at least twice a week, <laughs> whatever it is you need them to do. Uh, respond to emails within twenty-four hours." Um, and that you are not going to ask them to run personal errands for you or provide food for committee meetings. Um, it's enforceable. There need to be consequences that are laid out. A path, including a path for a student to find a new advisor. Like say, here are some recommended people I, I suggest you develop relationships with that will not only help your career, but will provide you a safety net. Be honest with yourself and be honest with them. Okay. These are excellent recruiting tools. When you're trying to bring somebody into your lab to work under you, 
giving them a document that says exactly what they can expect, what they can get from you, how you're going to help them with the career. Say, I can help you in academia, but I'm not going to be helpful when it comes to government or policy. I'm somewhat helpful when it comes to industry. That's great because then they can know exactly how you're going to help them. But you can also say, here's another resource if you want to do this. I've done some of this legwork. I will, I will not expect you to do this, this, and this if you want to do those careers because I know that's professional development that you need to do elsewhere, right? Spell it out. Um, and if you genuinely believe that you are a good advisor who behaves appropriately, then this should be something that you love the idea of because you can prove it. You can sign this, create it, and send it out to your students. And, and it's a wonderful recruitment tool. And you get to keep your word and you can show it every day. And you can come back and reevaluate this, say, what can I do better? And it doesn't require any university implementation. You can create it in the afternoon. We have examples on the farm website that we have that other people have implemented and used to great success. Now, there are other things that can be done, but these are the ones that that we believe can make the most impact within the shortest amount of time. Appreciate you laying all those out because I think it's helpful, you know, that these these feel sort of tangible and like you said, like can happen quickly, low cost and uh, have a pretty positive impact and that like, you know, hopefully something like a mentor, you know, mentorship agreement or, you know, uh, whatever it might be called, like it, you know, mirrors things where like there's roommate agreements between, you know, students that live on campus and uh, those sort of things. So like, you know, it would be ideal that it could be implemented, you know, very intentionally as like an institutional policy, but um, you know, even just on a department level, like is that they could kind of model away and say, this is something that we uh, believe in, we want, like you said, with any relationship, just make make sure people's voices are heard, they articulate sort of expectations versus it being kind of like unintentionally kind of stepping in, you know, kind of issues and everything where like, like, oh, I didn't know how you prefer to communicate, how frequent, what modalities or, you know, what tone or, you know, uh, those sort of things. So um, it, it, yeah, it's helpful, you know, for working relationships and, you know, certainly because it could be students where, you know, this is really the... Uh, first sort of experience that they've had working in a capacity like this where it's just like, oh yeah, I mean, like I worked in like, as like a server, or like I worked like, you know, uh, in customer service. And like, now it's like, this is like a professional job on campus. Like, yeah, it's helpful to kind of, you know, uh, work through these as even just like a learning experience. Cause like, you know, you know, I think a lot of what you said, it's like, and why I'm sure there's often like pushback is that like somebody could take this, and it's like, are you presuming that I'm going to like be an awful person? So you're trying to like, you know, do whatever. It's like, no, again, I think it, it's just a helpful tool. And it's like, no, look at it as a like, you know, positive thing and as a, you know, a tool for, uh, for learning. Uh, so I think in, you know, definitely uh, uh, glad to see that you have some examples. Obviously the folks can uh, check out what the, you know, the agreements and everything. And yeah, I mean, like, just like the, like I said, like having those opportunities for people to learn how to be better supervisors or, you know, and like some accountability with these things is the context that I'm looking at it. Cause it's like, you would do the same again, like for students, if it's like, okay, you signed a contract to live on campus or, you, you know, any of these sort of things, like it's setting an expectation and makes it clear what the consequences if people don't hold up their end of the bargain. So yeah, like, yeah, that's all. Yeah, it's very clear. There's very, like, we think of course evaluations. Graduate students don't have to give course evaluations, usually because our courses are too small. There's no way for us to give feedback to our universities about our education. And that's, you know, just one minor way. But institutions of higher education are an opportunity to grow, to become better. And that is one of the things that I love about higher education. I, love to continually progress to become the best version of myself and i it sometimes can be hard to realize that you've done things that have hurt people but that's no excuse to keep doing it or to hide away from it it takes introspection it takes a commitment to be better tomorrow than you are today but that's what it means to be in higher education that's what we do and I, I think that we need to just come to terms with that. 
you mentioned that it would be great if all of these could be implemented across the board. That's what farm, the farm project is actually specifically towards. We want federal agencies to incentivize universities and PIs who apply to grants to demonstrate good mentorship. Um, we are looking at a larger long-term scale project uh, and that's really outside of the scope of exactly what we're talking about here. Um, but the wonderful thing about these things is that they can be done without federal intervention. They can be done without, uh, you know, any sort of laws or regulations coming in. You can do these things because you want to ensure that you are doing the best you can for your students. And I think that's a good enough reason. Um, and I genuinely believe that that faculty and advisors do too. Yeah. Well, Cause I think, you know, it's kind of like a wild West right now. Like there's not a lot of these things, you know, readily sort of implemented. So it's like, we've seen what we get with this sort of raw deal is like, yeah, it's this epidemic of graduate student um, mental health issues and everything. And that, you know, institutions themselves and certainly just society at large, I think is just not been able to keep up with like, what is certainly a good thing is like people being far more comfortable voicing their issues and seeking help for their issues than they may have been, you know, a century ago, you know, so like, you know, sometimes on one hand, it's like, yeah, like, there's more instances of this, because people are more comfortable, you know, vocalizing it and seeking help. But that also does not alleviate sort of the responsibility to again, like make every, you know, best effort to create structures that are uh, con conducive to more healthy environments. Cause I think just like, you know, ambiguity and chaos and, you know, uh, just like the unpredictability of what it sounds like, you know, a lot of graduate students are experiencing, you know, from, you know, uh, the different sort of examples and things that you shared, like, it is like, you know, there has to be and there is and there should be a better way uh and i certainly you know appreciate you and you know all the other folks that are advocating for change in this space and that graduate students have not like lost the will to sort of strike and advocate and walk out and do all these things and that like there is also now like they've got a spotlight they're like cool we're gonna use it let's keep the conversation very active you know i see at least probably like an email at least every week and sometimes like multiple times a week where it's like in, you know, as of the recording of this episode, like this morning, uh, Rutgers University and a like there's just a huge write up on a lot of sort of, you know, advocacy, you know, and it's a lot of stuff that you mentioned, like it's sometimes it's just like we need to be paid more. We need like, you know, like just a lot of like there's kind of a laundry list of things that they're asking for because uh, like you said, it's just been, you know, so long without any sort of uh, really substantial improvements at a lot of these institutions. So uh, with all of that being said, and, you know, with certainly the lens focused on, you know, for this conversation with graduate student mental health uh, crisis that's going on, are there uh, resources and things that you'd want to share on this topic? Um, I mean, obviously, you mentioned farm and uh, some other things and everything, but uh, things that we can include in the show notes, because I feel like you probably have a rich library of uh, knowledge and resources and things that, uh, you know, be relevant for folks. That's basically what the farm website has tried to do. Um, so we have our, our website, faarmproject.org. Um, and if you just Google farm and misspell it and then try to correct Google, you'll find us because um, Google will try to correct you. As I said, we're just a project. We don't even have like an organization officially. NAGPS, the National Association of Graduate Professional Students uh, at NAGPS.org is another wonderful resource for finding um, ways to help. There's a lot of different universities that have implemented a lot of different things. And so we regularly try to comb through things uh, that we find at different places to add them to our lists. Um, another organization that has good resources is the uh, Future of Research. So they are a postdoc-based organization um, that look at, you know, farm incorporates postdoc related issues. We try to use the tra the term trainee, but we're not really talking about them right now, so that's fine. Campus climate surveys uh, are one good way in general to get a to get an idea of what's going on in terms of transparency. And if a university doesn't have anything to hide, then they would be happy sharing that information. I do believe that. I believe in transparent data. Um, other organizations, so the National Academies has done 
wonderful things when it comes to advocating on behalf of graduate students. Um, I am, I've worked with them on sexual harassment initiatives. Uh, I mentioned their publication a bit ago um, and they have other resources. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I will give links to all of these. Um, but I, th I think the best resource are your students. Um, these, these are things that, you know, notice that those recommendations were not pay your students more or let them unionize or anything like that. They were just, they were things about ensuring that you're doing that the faculty are crossing their T's and dotting their I's. I don't necessarily think that even if you were to double every student's pay, that would solve the problem and help some things, but you're still, and I mean, let's be real. A lot of students are being paid using federal grant money. And so these are taxpayer dollars that are going to their education and their training. And it's not a lot, but it's worth it for them to get their education. But what is being done really with that money? Not necessarily good things. And I think that we need to hold ourselves accountable as scientists, in my case, um, as educators, to ensure that we are being good stewards of what we've been given, the money, the facilities, resources, and our students. Yeah, and I think of this a lot with just sort of the implementation of various, like, student support resources, you know, like most of my experience, uh, I guess anymore, it's kind of like balance between like undergrads and graduate students, like, you know, I've worked a fair amount with both. And, uh, you know, I was a graduate student as well. I mean, like, I just have my master's and everything. But like, so I think there's a lot that I sort of empathize with just across the board for just sort of, you know, the student experience, as it were. Um, and with a lot of these things, it's like, you know, I try to, you know, this is very mushy, kind of like gooey core that I sort of have here, whatever. But like the idea of an institution showing a level of care, you know, so the idea of like implementing policies and all this, like, okay, like every, you know, graduate student and their mentor advisor has an agreement in place. And we have all the, like, it's like all this stuff. And again, it is not presuming that there, you know, is all these bad actors and all this kind of stuff, but it shows a level of care that you sort of invested the time and the effort and the policies and thought, you know, and everything to intentionally create these structures that, you know, shows that you care about these graduate students, which, you know, uh, they are sort of integral to so many institutions and their teaching and, you know, all of that. And then like, if you are, you know, the way that I've like thought about it is like, you know, creating a structure for like students to get, uh, you know, use better help or whatever, you know, like talk space or something where it's like, hey, this is here for you guys. Like we're investing in it. We're paying for it. We're paying for tutoring. We're paying for like whatever. And like you sort of are making that sort of like with the resources and sort of the scale that you have versus like, you know, there's kind of that just presumption, I'm sure, especially with graduate and professional students where it's like, hey, you know, like maybe you're working, you got your own insurance, whatever. It's like, you know, go find your own care and good luck, whatever. Like, you know, so it's like even if any of these things like what you're recommending or any other support resources that institution could put in place, like even if they're not being utilized by like 100 percent of students or, you know, like any of these sort of things, it's just like creating just that entire culture and just sort of community of care. Uh, so that like, you know, and I think you, you see a lot of the well-to-do institutions can sort of have a lot of like safety nets that can catch students and those sort of things. So I think as much as any institution can do that, having ways that you can try to catch the students so that like, you know, half of these graduate students aren't leaving. Um, and then, like you said, and I've had this experience as well, working with a lot of graduate students, like it's even harder, like, think about how hard it is, you know, if you work in higher education, how hard it is to transfer very seamlessly as an undergrad, like, it's even harder as a graduate student. So like, you know, if we're losing them, they're probably either having to start over completely somewhere else, or uh, they're just done. They're like, I guess this wasn't for me. And maybe not right now, or maybe not ever. So like, uh, you know, I think you've given a lot of awesome insights and thoughts and resources. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly just, I know that this is something that you care deeply about and have a very emotional sort of like, you know, that same kind of core that just drives you, you know, like if you experience it, this is something viscerally that is sort of, uh, you know, sort of helping to fuel your efforts and everything. But, you know, I always like to give folks the opportunity as we wrap up, final thought, 
call to action. Uh, How do you want to wrap it? I say that because of all the feels, right? Like it's hard for me to talk about these topics without wanting to talk about all of the ways that college campuses and universities have influenced lives for good and that these are homes for their students. I got married on my undergraduate college campus and I have spent all but one of my adult years at a university campus as a student or as an employee. They shape our lives. They shape our society. They are valuable, necessary institutions. And we are collectively committed to once we know better, like knowing and then doing better, becoming um, the force that shapes society for good. It can be hard to see our flaws because we want to think the best of ourselves um, and we see all the good that we do and it feels painful when people poke at them. But your ability to earn a degree should not be dependent upon the amount of abuse you can tolerate. And that's exactly the situation it is for far too many graduate students. Hopefully the thing that sort of echoes out into the universe is do better. Because even if it's like, hey, I think we're doing our best. It's like almost like having that position where it's like, I know and great, but do better. You know, like always try to find because it's even just sometimes it's like, you know, inch by inch, you know, where it's just like, yeah, we're not like some places are going to have like leaps and bounds to grow and improve but even then it's like all right we'll keep sort of like you know pivoting tinkering and doing you know what you can um by yeah again certainly listening listening to your students is a great place to start and certainly doing the things that you recommended so uh thank you so much for talking about this again i know it's something that you care so deeply about and i'm very grateful and honored to have the opportunity to sort of help uplift you and everybody else's work uh in this area and we'll have ways to connect with you and all the resources mentioned in the show notes thank you so much for your time Thank you. I really appreciate it on behalf of every student out there. Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. Our shows feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Mickey Baines, Jeremy Tears, Jamie Hunt, Corinne Myers, Jamie Gleason, and many, many more. You can learn more about the Enrollify Podcast Network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. Find yours at podcasts.enrollify.org.